Hello, friends. It's time for the second hour of Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. We're taking your questions about God, about Christianity, about the Bible, about your Christian walk, about something you're facing that may be difficult for you to decide. I am Dr. Mike Fabares. I'm filling in today for Dr. Michael Rydelnik, who's just doing fine. He's just out on a speaking engagement this weekend. I happen to be the founding pastor of Compass Bible Church in Aliso Viejo, California, right in the heart of South Orange County. Bible teacher on Focal Point Radio Program, which is my privilege to be on the Moody Network and authored a number of books, a couple that Moody Publishing has put out, one on parenting called Raising Men, Not Boys, which uh, couldn't be more urgent for our generation, and one just recently released released on Envy, uh, a big problem you didn't know you had. And it's a short little book, but maybe if that title intrigues you, you can go to wherever you buy books and you can look for that book, Envy. By Mike Fabares, I, I hope it's helpful. It was uh, it was a challenge to write, just in terms of thinking through all the ways envy kind of raises its ugly head. But I hope it will be helpful in you putting it to death. And you're gonna have to do that probably every every week, every month, uh, sometimes every day, depending on what you're dealing with. But I hope the book becomes a help. Well, today is about Bible questions. If you have a Bible question, something about the Christian life, and you want us to weigh in on it, I say us. You're gonna hear from our team. We've got a great team answering the phones and sorting through everything, but I will eventually, Lord willing, be on the air answering your question if you call us at 877-548-3675. That's 1-877-548-3675, or go to openlineradio.org. Look for that Ask Michael a Question, which happens to work for both Rydelnik and Fabares. That's good. Uh, And you can fill out that form. You can get in the mailbag, and Trish will bring that later to us, and we will work through it. So get your Bibles. Let's dig back into it by going to the phones now. Let's go to Brenda. You're on the air with Mike Fabares. How can I help? Good morning. Thank Good morning. you for your knowledge and for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in your life. Um, Thank you, Brenda. In the Bible, it, yes, and in the Bible it states that our sins are forgotten as far as the East is from the West. So if our sins are forgotten, why are we held accountable for them? And we have to give an accounting for those sins. Okay, well, and let's start with that last point, because there are people that don't even want to read those verses or believe them. But Romans chapter 14, verse 12, makes it very clear, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Context is about Christians fighting about secondary issues and making an issue out of stuff they shouldn't. And certainly that's elsewhere. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, I think about that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Now you think to yourself, well, how does that mesh? With what you just quoted, Psalm 103, one of my favorites, as far as the East is from the West, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. It's a wonderful text, which is following a great section about not being punished for our sins. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. So as children of God, there is no condemnation for those in Christ, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and we think, well, then why in the world do I have to be held uh, to an account? Why is there any kind of evaluation of my life, which is what this judgment is? It's looking at my life and responding. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is all about that. We got wood, hay, and straw, which is the things that don't matter. They're, They're not good. They don't comport with good Christian stewardship. 
stewardship. And then there's things that God sees in our life as gold, silver, and precious stones, and those things are going to be rewarded. Now, here's what you need to understand about judgment. Judgment can be for condemnation. There's a kind of judgment that looks at our lives and says, this sin has not been paid for. It needs to be paid for. You are going to be judged according to your deeds. That takes place place at the great white throne judgment. Those who are resurrected to appear before their maker are going to have to be punished for their sins. Christ says, I don't want you to be punished for your sins. I don't want to deal with you according to your iniquities. I want to take your sins and remove them from you as far as the east is from the west. That's what we plead people to consider by throwing themselves in the mercy of God, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he's done, and there will be no condemnation for them. And yet, then we say, well, that's great. I can do whatever I want. Well, you can't do whatever you want. Not only is the Holy Spirit going to convict you and make you miserable if you try to do whatever you want, but you are going to stand before God and answer for your life. Now, if I look at that evaluation and I say, well, now is he going to reward me according to my iniquities? The answer is no, because God has promised he never will. So I don't fear the condemnation or the judgment, but I am going to have to give an account, and the context of Romans 14 is I am his servant, and a servant has to face the master and has to say before our king... uh, uh, here's what I did, just like every parable Jesus told about, like, I, I, I took these talents, and I either invested them well, or I invested them moderately well, or I didn't invest them well at all. And the point is, we need to be ready for that evaluation. And I like to say it's the difference between, here in my county, going to Santa Ana, the county courthouse, and being tried and judged by a judge, and he is going to assign how much punishment you get, you know, how much of your liberty you lose, how long you go to prison. But you go down just a, a few exits down the highway, you go to the Orange County Fairgrounds, and uh, there's judges there. Uh, but, you know, it's festive. People are eating their uh, their turkey legs, and there's popcorn and cotton candy, and then they go and have their pie judged or their chili judged, or, you know, I think they still have people bringing in their, their animals to judge their animals. Well, there's judgment going on, but no one is leaving punished. There's no punishment, but there's an evaluation of their work. You bake that apple pie, let's taste it and see how you did. Did you put too much salt in it? How did, how did it go? Maybe there's a shoelace in it. Well, that's not going to be rewarded. But guess what? Even if there's a shoelace in your pie, uh, you're not going to be punished, right? You're going to be, you're going to get less reward for that, for sure. You want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You want to have rewards for the things that you've done. That's only appropriate. Jesus kept talking about those rewards. And I want to glorify God by seeking his favor and even his rewards, because that's the right thing that Jesus motivates us with, his glory and his gifts. And I want to have those. So I want to be a faithful steward because of the judgment that's coming. Now, is his focus going to be on what you did wrong, Brenda? No. His focus is going to be on what you did right. But all the things you did wrong and the things that I do wrong in my Christian life, those are going to take away from the kinds of reward and and the commendation, not the condemnation, but the commendation that God would want to bring. So, Brenda, that's why we want to live before the Lord a faithful Christian life as good stewards, because we will be evaluated and rewarded. But take the tone of the Orange County Fair versus the Orange County Courthouse, and know that's a two different environments. Some people are biting their nails there in the gallery, seeing if their friend is going to go to jail and how long, and then there's people biting their nails maybe at the fairgrounds, but but then they're taking a bite of their turkey leg and cheering, you know, uh, the people that do a great job. So there is no condemnation. This is not doom and gloom. This is just us making sure that we live the Christian life the way we ought. Does that help, Brenda? It certainly does. And thank you so much. Yes, it, it makes you inspired to do 
what you know the Lord wants you to do. I mean, I just feel so sorry for all those people who don't even know the Lord. It's it's just amazing. Well, I do too, and you and I, Brenda, should be talking to people about the Lord. We should definitely let them know. There's no better place to be than to have your sins forgiven, and now trying to live the life that God would say to us, hey, well done, that's good, and he is going to reward his servants. That's just a wonderful thing, and we will be so just humbled by what he does in that regard. Thanks for the call today, Brenda. We appreciate it so much. Let's go on to now, back to Chicago. Norma, you're on the air with Mike Fabares. How can I help? Good morning, uh, I was wondering if you could clarify the conversation <clears throat> that Jesus had with his disciples in Luke 22, where he tells them, <clears throat> before I told you that when you go out on the road, don't worry about anything you need. But now I tell you, if you have a cloak, sell it and buy a sword. <clears throat> um, so my question is, how, in addition to like clarification on that, because the reason I want clarification is because there's someone that I heard on a podcast who said, <clears throat> that at the end of their life, end of Jesus's life, I mean, that Jesus was more like a revolutionary and that he even promoted the use of weapons. And they okay. used this passage of the Bible to base their opinion. Right. So, if I said to you that I went out to buy a 9mm handgun this week and you say, why? Are you going to rob a bank? Are you going to go, you know... Hostily take over the city council chambers with it? I say, no, 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 no. I just, I'm living in a really rough part of town. I just want to protect my family. You'd say, oh, okay. That's two different reasons to get a sword. Jesus did mm-hmm. in, in Luke 22 tell them if they didn't have a sword, right, to sell your cloak. Rather, you'd be cold than not have just your means of protection. And the reason I know it's the means of protection, because just after Jesus said that in Luke 22, John 18 says, as he's before Pilate, He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, I'm quoting now verse 36 of John 18, my servants would be fighting, right? Uh, But no, I'm going to be delivered over to the Jews. My kingdom is not of this world. I'm not a revolutionary in the sense that other people are revolutionaries by sharpening their swords to threaten people with violent force to do what what we say, what we believe. We don't do that. The weapons of our warfare— to quote Paul now to the Corinthians, right? Uh, they're arguments. They're tearing down arguments, lofty thoughts that raise themselves up against the knowledge of God. So we are revolutionaries, absolutely, right? We are revolutionaries, but we're revolutionaries not with guns, not with swords, not with bombs. We are revolutionaries because we, as Christians, are out there willing to say, if you're thinking wrongly about reality, about yourself, about God, we're going to correct that. We're going to engage in conversation. But the sword has got to be, in Luke 22, verse 36, has to be for the kinds of things that we read about elsewhere in Scripture, where you might be going down the road to Jericho and from Jerusalem, which is one of the most dangerous places. It's not only dangerous in terms of the winding road and the cliffs, but that's where the robbers hid out. It'd be good for you to protect your wife and your kids as you travel to Jericho uh, by having some means of protection. So that's what's going on in Luke 22. And I just know that in John 18, he's saying this right after that. Hey, if we had a kind of revolution going on like every other revolution, my servants would have their swords out and they'd be fighting, but that's not what we're doing. We're speaking the truth. Mm-hmm. We're speaking the truth in love. We're trying to persuade people with arguments, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, knowing the fear of God, we persuade men. We want to make sure people understand Jesus is, is the Lord. He's the Savior, and we need to get in, involved in arguments and conversations. I say arguments in the best sense of the word. We don't need your vein popping out on your forehead with anger. We, we, we are gentle. Yeah. We are giving gentle responses with respect, but we are definitely 
definitely saying when the world is wrong about X, Y, or Z, hey, you're wrong. You've got to submit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that help, Norma? Oh, yeah, yeah, very very much, especially the part about what he said in John 18. That was super helpful. Yeah, well, and it's good to know that— Good to know the timing, the sequence, right? He said that, mm-hmm. and then he goes and he goes to trial, and he says that, right? So, it, yeah, get a sword. But now we know what the sword is for. It is not, right? It is not to try and overthrow the Roman government. It, it, it's got to be for the love that I have for my family and my friends to make sure that someone doesn't take advantage of me on some road wanting to kill, rape my wife or kill my children or kill me. Uh, and there's a time and a place, certainly in Scripture, for that. So I hope that helps. Thanks so much for the call, Norma. We got a lot of other calls on the line. We want to get to those. My name is Pastor Mike Fabares from Orange County, California, sitting in today for Dr. Michael Rydelnik. You're listening to Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, uh, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. And that is what we're doing. We're studying God's Word by taking your questions about the Christian life, about something you're facing, about something you've read in the Bible. The phone number is 877-548- Three six seven five. So give me a call and we'll be back right after this with more of your calls and answers from God's Word. Israel is constantly in the news, facing political, diplomatic, and even violent struggles. What does the future hold? Chosen People Ministries, one of our underwriters, and an organization reaching Jewish people with the good news all around the world, is offering a book, Israel's Glorious Future. Written by their past president, Harold Sevener, this book details God's faithfulness to his covenant promises made to Israel in the past and biblical prophecies yet to be fulfilled in the future. God's word reveals that despite current difficulties, Israel's future is certain and glorious. If you'd like a free copy of the book, Israel's Glorious Future, just go to openlineradio.org. That's our website, openlineradio.org. Scroll down to the link that says a free gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that and you'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your own free copy of Israel's Glorious Future. I'm Mike Fabares on Open Line Today, sitting in for Dr. Michael Rydelnik. I'm so excited to be on the program today to take your questions about the Bible and your Christian life. The number, if you want to get in queue here for the questions, is 877-548-3675. That's the number to call. Let's go back to the phones. Delia, you're on the air with Mike Fabares. How can I help? Pastor Mike, I am so excited that this may finally be the day that I get some clarity about a question I have about Jesus. Okay. And I want to begin by saying that I I love Jesus. I believe in him. I follow him with all of my soul. I see him as the prince that God sent. Um, our father got sent to us to show us how to live and the creator to lord over the, the that the creator sent to us ask Lord to, um, with full authority to save us and reconcile us back to the Father. And um, I believe all of that. But when I read the scriptures, um, I continue to see them as separate people, I, not people, but beings, because Jesus declares to be the Son of God. And he also says, the Father is greater than I, and pray to the Father, and only the Father knows when I'm coming back. And um, and. All of those scriptures that talk about only the God, only God is good. And uh, it just goes on and on. And even when he talks about 
when Jesus says, um, when Jesus talks about the Father being in him, he says, I don't speak this of my own accord. Uh, he also goes on to say that we are in Jesus, which doesn't make us Jesus, right? And so I always see that pointing to two different beings, sort of like a sort of like a royalty, like God being the king and Jesus being the prince with all authority over us. So could you please point me to a scripture that's powerful and undisputable that states clearly that Jesus and God are one? Okay, well, I, I know you probably know, just having described your question as detailed as you have, that John chapter 10 right, gives that statement there in verse 30, I and the Father are one, and I understand you could say, well, in a sense, in John 17, he says, like, we're supposed to be one, even as he and the Father are one. So you can say that, but the idea of what happens when he says that is that the Jews pick up stones to stone him, right, because he makes himself equal to God. It's blasphemy. That's why he was crucified, for blasphemy. And when you and I could go one by one through every example that you just gave, and that is that he is the Son of God, which is all the description in Daniel chapter 7, who is one who has all dominion, all glory, all kingdom, all the nations, all the people are going to serve him. And I get you could say, well, a prince, you would do that with a prince. But here are some things you cannot say about some human prince, right? Because I can say the persons of the Godhead are distinct, right? The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father. And I will say that many of the things that you've described, if I'm going to group them together, are going to be because Jesus came, it says in Philippians 2, and he laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes. It's called the kenosis. The Greek word is kenosis. He emptied himself, which means that he was, prior to his incarnation, different in the exercise of his divinity— Right During that time, he was all divine, but the way that he chose to exercise his divine attributes was in submission to the Father. He didn't do things on his own accord. He provided for us a template and an example for us to live. Now, when I look at what the Scripture says regarding worship, you take a Jew in the first century or Jew in the Old Testament, and you said, can I worship anyone besides God? They're going to go, no way, right? Exodus 34, Right, you think about it. Worship the Lord your God, for the Lord your God is a jealous God. The whole Ten Commandments are based on the fact you worship no one but God, the divine, eternal creator of all things. Well, in John chapter 5, verse 23, the whole point here in his statement about who he is, he says that all may honor the Son just as, in the Greek language, kathos, in the same manner, to the same extent, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son, the way you honor the Father, does not honor the Father who sent me. So we know that in that passage just by itself, when Jesus is saying that he is one who's to be honored and worshiped, and he receives and accepts all that worship, even as the New Testament goes on to say in Colossians chapter 2, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, or Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, of the divine nature, and upholds the universe by the word of his power. We're talking about Jesus here. So the Son of God, having all of that authority, says, you should worship me as you worship the Father. And if you look at the two things he says right before that, in John chapter 5, verse 21, he says, the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Well, I look at Job 33, I think, well, the only one that gives life is the Almighty. The Almighty gives life. No one else gives life. There's only one originator. There's either you're derivative from life, from the Creator, or you are the giver of life. And Jesus says there, I give life just like the Father gives life. And then he goes on to say, for the Father judges no one. He's given all judgment to the Son. 
Well, the Bible's really clear. Only the Lord can judge his, his crea creation. The creatures are to be subject to their creator, which is why John 1, 1 starts with the fact that he is the creator, right? In him was the life that was the light of men. He's the giver of life. Nothing that was made, right, was made without him. He is the giver of life and therefore the judge of all life. And you better honor him, worship him the same way you'd worship the father. And when you start to say, I just think he's the prince and I really wouldn't honor the prince the way I'd honor the king, the creator, the father, the one in charge of all things, right? I'm going to say you had better or you don't honor the father because the son is equal to the father in terms of his divine attributes. What you're looking at when you keep the examples that you use, you list those examples, they are all about the way that God has taken the Son to be our fulfillment of righteousness, dependent upon the Father through the power of the Spirit. This is all what Philippians 2 is trying to describe to us, that he laid aside the independent function of his divine attributes. So we worship Jesus Christ. We worship him the same way, kathos, to the extent that we would worship the Father. We do that because he is God. He is fully God. And just like it says in John 10, when he says, I and the Father are one, we can't skip to John 17 and say, well, God, we can be one too, and I'm not the same person as my, as my Christian friend in my small group. No, that's true, but they picked up stones to stone him. And, and when he says, why? Why are you stoning me? He says, because I'm doing all these good works. No, because you blaspheme, because you being a man make yourself out to be God, right? And, and, and the reality is, he is God. He's God in human form, because God is a triunity. God is three persons in one essence, and that is a rich doctrine that we're forced into. Right? We're not making it up like the Jehovah Witnesses say we make it up. We're forced into it by the data in the Scripture. If there's a better way to reconcile this data, I want it, but the Church has been saying this from the beginning. Jesus is God, the Father is God, the Spirit is God, Right, but they're not equal in terms of their personhood in the sense that they are not the same, right? They're co-equal in essence, in worth, in, in the divinity that they, they are. They're all God, but the reality is the, the Spirit is not Jesus, and Jesus is not the Father. And that's why we can have a discussion in the Upper Room Discourse about the Son appealing to the Father to send the other, the Spirit, the Helper, the Parakletos, to come and dwell within us. So I'd say John 5, spend some time in John 5, verses 21 through 23, memorize those, think those through, think about the context of those, and then spend some time in Philippians chapter 2 and understand why all the other questions that surface in your mind about why he would be dependent on the Father, why he would willingly submit himself to not knowing facts that the Father knows, right? All of those things, you would say, that's because of the humility of the incarnation. But then he prays in John 17, restore to me the glory I had before the world, right? Before I was sent to the world, before the world was made, the eternal co-equal Son, right, had all the glory of the Father, and he lays that aside during his earthly ministry and says some things that make us scratch our head. Is that really God saying that? Yes, it is really God saying that, because every now and then he says things about who he is, including his divinity there in John 5, that is just, it's, it's, if you take that in light of John 10, you've got to know what he means by I and the Father are one, is very different than you and I saying we can be one in Christ. So I hope that helps. That is a, a tough uh, topic. I understand, Velia, but I, I want you to understand that, that every generation of Christian thinker has been through the very questions you have, and they've come to the conclusion, almost without exception, they've come to the conclusion, we're dealing here with a triune God where all three persons are co-equal in terms of their worth and their divinity. They are all God, but they are all distinct in their person. That's, that blows our minds, but God is much greater than we are, and it's hard for us to
pack the eternal triune God into our brain. So I hope at least, uh, Velia, that helps you and gives you some things to chew on in this next season of your wrestling with the triunity of God. I hope it does. Does it? You think that might be some things to chew thank on you. here? You know, I want to say thank you so much for not being condemning, because I, I, I did not want to come to church and ask this question. I just don't, I feel like people would say, well, you're not a Christian, you know, you're having these doubts. I thank you so much for the way you explained it. I'm going to, I'm going to study it from that angle. And uh, if you wouldn't mind, I, I just had like one real quick question at the end. Okay. When yeah. we get to heaven, how do you suppose that we're going to see and worship uh, God and Jesus together as one? Uh, because it says he's sitting at the right. I, I have trouble with, I always want to imagine when we get to heaven and he says he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And I always imagine like the spirit and then Jesus on, on the right hand side. Can you... I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I think everything you read in in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 are descriptives of something that are very hard to put into concrete terms. In other words, what we see going on is something we can't see with our eyes. In other words, you can see Christ, right? He is he's he's a person incarnate, but we cannot see the Father according to 1 Timothy chapter 6. More on that maybe after the break. My name is Mike Fabars. I'm sitting in today for Dr. Michael Rydelnik. Our number is 877-548-3675. And we're going to be back right after this. Each week on Open Line, with me, Dr. Michael Rydelnik, we sit around our radio kitchen table and study the scriptures together. You can become a kitchen table partner by supporting Open Line each month. As a benefit to becoming a partner, you'll receive a bi-weekly email called a Bible study moment, where I'll share Bible study tips, answer some common Bible questions, and encourage you in your spiritual walk. Become a kitchen table partner today. Call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. We're so glad that FEBC partners with Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, bringing the FEBC mailbag every week. Learn how Far East Broadcasting Company is taking Christ to the world at febc.org. On their weekly podcast, Until All I've Heard with Ed Cannon, you'll hear stories of lives changed by Messiah all across the globe. Again, you can hear the podcast when you visit febc.org. That's febc.org. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Dr. Mike Fabares. I'm filling in today for Dr. Michael Rydelnik, who's out speaking somewhere, and we are back for the second mailbag of the morning, which is, I'm sure, your favorite time, because you get to hear from our producer, Trish McMillan, who's so much more fun to listen to than me, and she is here with the mailbag over her shoulder, and the rope is unfurled, and you have some mail for us. I do, but first, I wanted you to, to be able to finish answering uh, Velia's question about how you think we'll worship God yes. and Jesus in heaven. Well, whatever we are trying to imagine, as Velia was saying, from that scene of being disembodied and in the presence of God, it will be a very unique situation, and it will not be our permanent situation. When we're in resurrected bodies on the earth, we'll look to the incarnate uh glorified Jesus Christ. We'll be able to see his face. We'll be able to have him on banners. I don't know how that all is going to work, but we're going to see him. He will be the king of the world, the new world, the world that lives 
here forever in righteousness and in our resurrected bodies. God is going to to dwell in a an unapproachable light. First Timothy chapter six. I think he'll continue to be in his new heaven, and uh, doesn't mean that we won't have full uh, fellowship with him. But it, it is not as though we're going to have to always imagine some spirit that you can't see next to a body that you can see, and then the Holy Spirit which you can't see somehow just floating around as some kind of visual representation. I don't think we're going to have a visible visual representation. I don't think we'll need a visible representation. We'll have the experience without any sin between us of a spirit that works within us and bears the fruit of the spirit. And we'll have the father that we know is the uh, father of the triunity of God. And we will have on our banners as our king, Jesus, the Messiah in physical form, glorified, but in physical form in the new New heaven or in the new earth, as the Father is in the new heaven. That that is how I think that's going to be. How's it going to be in the interim period? We call it the intermediate state. Well, it's going to be something that is the reality depicted by the symbols and all the symbolist uh, symbolism of Revelation four and five in that heavenly scene that John tries to describe. All right, thank you. I hope that helps, Phil. Yeah. Um, okay, so to the mailbag. Our first question is from Tim, who listens online. Um. I was reading Deuteronomy 20, verses 10 to 18, and was disturbed by what appears to be God condoning Israel's violent aggression against outsiders, culminating in what seems to be like slavery or murder and theft. I think I understand God's concern about the cities of the nations, the Lord your God giving you as an inheritance and their sinfulness, and the likelihood that they would lead Israel into idolatry. But in the verses mentioned, these are cities at a distance from you and don't belong to the nations nearby. So why would God have Israel attack them? And why would God bless their aggression and deliver such cities into Israel's hands? Well, I think the question is loaded in the sense that there is a bias here in thinking and presuming some things about those nations that I don't think that we should presume. Let's go back to an earlier question in Luke 22. Why would Jesus have them by swords? And I try to make a clear distinction between what Jesus says regarding the aggression of being a revolutionary, and he clearly makes that, that that is not what's happening. He precludes that in his statements to Pilate, and yet they've got swords. What are the swords for? It must be for defensively and lovingly protecting uh, the families, the people, my loved ones, as I'm traveling, as I'm doing the things that I'm doing. So we know that there is a time for violent behavior. If I said, I just happened to uh, kill someone who came in to kidnap my kids and, and take my wife, or you, you, would, you wouldn't say you're a murderer, right? Uh, that's not what the word is in, in the Bible when it comes to uh, the, the self-defense. It's violent, right? That's an aggressive act if I were to really step in and save my family from some violent intruder. Well, this is what all gets back to what we call in Christian tradition the just war theory. We believe that there's only a time for war when it is justly motivated, when there's a just reason for it. And the reason, starting with Augustine, that we we started to clarify that in modern governmental warfare is because it's drawn from Scripture. It's drawn from the Bible, including Deuteronomy chapter 20. We know that there's a time for war, as Ecclesiastes says, but that time for war, if it's going to be motivated by just reason, just cause, it better be done for the right reasons. And just like in the book of of Judges, we have nations that are outside of Israel, that Israel 
is being called to fight as God raises up what's called a judge, which is a military leader. He does that 13 times in the book of Judges to protect and defend the people of Israel because they are being assaulted and they have to respond. It's just like what's going on in the Middle East right now. People say, why in the world is Israel fighting those people? Well, fighting those people because this is a just cause to protect the nation of Israel, and so it has been in Deuteronomy chapter 20 and others. He's preparing them for that. As a matter of fact, he says he had to teach Israel Israel war. Why? Because we live in a violent world where you're going to have aggressive neighbors attack you, and you're going to have to aggressively respond if you're going to love the people that you're overseeing. And that's what's going on on a national level. The same thing that's implied in Luke 22 on a personal or domestic level when he tells the disciples, it'd rather be cold without a cloak, but to have a sword and a means of protection to protect you and your loved ones. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. I hope that helps, Tim. Our next question is from Jeffrey and Brianna on Facebook, uh, who want to know why was the Apocrypha removed from the Bible, and why do some Bibles keep these books? And I'm going to back up and say, can you tell us what the Apocrypha is first, and then tell us why it's in some Bibles and not in other Bibles? Right. And and even that, I, I want to point out, sometimes our questions are loaded in the sense we say, why do we take it out of the Bible? And I would say this, um, Christians never taken it out of the Bible. Uh, it has always been laid aside next to the Bible as something that was profitable to read. And the reason it's profitable to read is because there are some books in the Apocrypha which are mostly intertestamental between Malachi and Matthew. What happened during those 400, we call them silent years. And they've always been silent years and called silent years because we know that God is not giving us his revelation through the apostles or the prophets. Uh, this is These are silent years, and they're spoken of that way in history as far back as we can go. And yet there are things being written. Doesn't mean that people aren't writing books. There were books being written, and some of them in particular, 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees, very historical books that tell us the historical stories of how God continued to have his hand of providence upon Israel. Now there's plenty of other books. There's books in there, and I, I tried to, at least at one point in my Christian life, read through the Apocrypha at least once a year, so I could always be familiar with those books because in church history, they usually read them, but they understood we're not putting them in our Awana packets for our kids to memorize because they're not God's Word. They're filled with mistakes, and all you have to do is read them a couple of times with, with an open mind and with the rest of the Bible next to you, and you'll say, wow, this does not comport with the rest of Scripture. There's historical inaccuracies. There's things that you would say, well, this doesn't really match what the rest of the Bible says, uh, and some is just pure history, and it's helpful to learn about, and we understand those things to be truthful, but they're not inerrant. This is not God's inerrant Word. So those 13 or 14 books depending on the list, is going to give us information that the, the church has always seen to be profitable, but they weren't put into the Bible until the Counter-Reformation. And it was in the Counter-Reformation, technically, it was in 1546, when they decided, we're going to put these books in the Scripture, and we're going to quote them authoritatively. Now, I say they put them in. The Roman Catholic Church did it, because they didn't like the Reformers saying that you can't pray for the dead to get them out of purgatory. And there are a couple of statements in the Maccabees, they're very just scant statements where he speaks about the fallen on the war in, in the response to what was going on through Antiochus Epiphanes, this secular uh, uh, leader who had destroyed the temple. And in this war, um, Judas Maccabeus, he, he prays for those who have died. It's just a passing comment. Well, praying for—why would you pray for them? 
right? Whatever that meant, it's not explained in the text, but the Roman Catholic Church knew that Martin Luther and all the people in the Reformation were saying, hey, you're, you're narking us for, for this whole doctrine of purgatory and praying people out of purgatory and giving them money so that we can spring them out of purgatory. Well, look right here. Here's a book that we've always read. Uh, it's not been in the Bible, but we're going to put it in the Bible because we think this is justification for this whole doctrine of releasing people from purgatory. And so they kept it in there, and that is, uh, they put it in there because it was that verse, there was two verses that they thought could be used to prop up this doctrine of selling indulgences, which we're going to get you out of purgatory. So it's it's only been official scripture for the Roman Catholic Church, because they think they have the right to say what is scripture, what isn't. But we as Protestants have always recognized, we recognize scripture if it bears the marks of God's revelation, and all you have to do is read those books of the Apocrypha to know some of it's good history, uh, but some of it is clearly filled with inaccuracies, historical inaccuracies, and some of it's just fanciful, uh, you know, fable that takes things that have taken place in the Old Testament times of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles, and they make it into a, kind of a, a fabled story to tell kids just to teach them lessons, but is not rooted in reality. And that's why um, the Church has always said, well, we read it, but we don't see it as God's Word. Okay. Until the Counter-Reformation, when they said, well, we're going to put it back in there because there's a couple of statements there that might help us with our doctrine of selling, having people pay money, selling these things called indulgences to get their grandpa out of a place that's not in the Bible, but they've come up with called purgatory. Right. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, let's try and do one more. Okay. <laughs> um, our next one's from Laverne in Illinois. Uh, since the birth of Jesus Christ... Um, we Christians live eternally by his grace through our faith. Prior to that, we lived under the law. How did sinners prior to Jesus gain eternal life? Because everyone has fallen short of the glory of God and has sinned. Right. Well, what we need to understand is when they lived under the law, we also live under the moral dictates of the law, which means we're trying to understand what pleases the Lord, but it never earned our salvation, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Nothing earns our salvation in the moral code of the Bible. What's no longer applicable is the ceremonial codes of the Old Testament, and of course, we don't have to keep those. Circumcision doesn't matter. Dietary restrictions don't matter. Temple doesn't matter. In terms of us worshiping at a temple, we, can, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what we're saying is that we know that anyone who's saved in the Old Testament does exactly what Jesus said in that parable where the sinner says, have mercy on me, a sinner. They cry out to God. They trust in his grace. They didn't know uh, with specificity about a, uh, uh, the details of Christ's life, death, and, and burial and resurrection. It was buried in the prophetic word, but not everybody in the Old Testament was even knowledgeable of that. But they if they're going to be saved of their sins, they're trusting that God will graciously provide some kind of provision for their sin as they repent and put their trust in God. In the New Testament, it's very clear. We trust in Jesus Christ because that is God's revealed mechanism for us to be saved. So everyone is saved by grace if anyone is saved, both Old Testament and New Testament. They live under a law that we don't live under, which is the ceremonial law, but we all live looking to the moral law to decide and understand what it means to be holy as he is holy, both repeated in the New Testament, 1 Peter, and also in Leviticus. We're all supposed to call, we're all called to be holy, and we're only going to know what's holy if we study his moral law. So we're under the law in that sense, only insofar as we're learning what pleases him, ceremonial law behind us, but no one was saved by the law, never was, never will be. Uh, we're all just under 
understanding that God is a gracious God, as we just quoted earlier in our first hour in Psalm 103, who if we confess our sins, he's a gracious God to forgive us and take our sins and separate them far from us as far as the east is from the west. How does he do that? In Christ, right? And we don't worry about time with God. God can apply the merits of Christ to someone in the Old Testament just because it hasn't happened, it, it, it is going to happen, and it was all on credit. Let's just put it that way. For us, it's all on debit, if you want to think of it that way. Mm. Now Christ has already died, but the reality is we're all saved exactly the same way. By grace through faith. That's right. All right. All right. Thank you for that. Thanks for that question, Laverne. And that does it for this week's mailbag. Well, that was good. Thank you, Trish, for <laughs> bringing welcome. the mailbag. We got more questions coming up. I'm Dr. Mike Fabares. You're listening to Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, who's out speaking somewhere. And we're so grateful for that. This is Moody Radio you're listening to. And we can't wait to be back with you on the program, answering more questions right after this break. Some people think the Bible is too complex to read, but God never intended to frustrate us. If reading God's Word intimidates you, then I have a perfect resource. It's called Living by the Book, written by master teacher Howard Hendricks. This book will give you the confidence to read the Word and help you understand the Bible's relevance to life. Ask for Living by the Book when you give a gift of any amount. Call 888-644-7122 or just go to openlineradio.org. Welcome back to Open Line. My name is Dr. Mike Fabares. I'm sitting in for Dr. Michael Rydelnik, who's out speaking. Let's get back to our phones right now. Heidi, you're on the air with Mike Fabares. How can I help? Hi, yes. Thank you for answering. My husband and I uh, recently asked a group of 20-something. They're part of a church plant, great human beings, love Jesus, sharing Jesus. Uh, Right after October 7th happened, we asked basically what they knew or how much they were taught in theology school. It was almost dead silent. They really didn't know much about Israel um, and the importance. I guess I've always been taught that it's God's timeline. And then it made me wonder, well, what did I teach my kids when they were growing up? And um, obviously uh, a lot of the, you know, Harvard and things, there's people that are totally unlearned or uneducated about what's going on or what went on all through history, the covenant God made with Israel. So first of all, I'm just asking, what is happening? Is that just my little neck of the world? Also, how do we approach it? Um, Because they are focused on the local ministry, what they're doing, their young families. And I don't know if it seems overwhelming to them to think about the entire, you know, world right now. Um, but I just don't know how much to not push it, but think that it's important for them to know or to teach. Um, the last thing I'll say is I met with one of them, and the last thing I said was, because he was very New Testament, um, didn't kind of see how important the Old Testament was. I'm not saying he discounted it, but it was very interesting. There was so much he didn't know, and I said, well, I guess I didn't want to overwhelm him. I said, well, focus, keep your eyes on Jesus, keep your eyes on Jesus but also keep your eyes open to what's yes. happening. 
No, I get it, Heidi. Hundred percent. Your concern is is well founded, and I would say you should be as concerned as the Apostle Paul was in the New Testament that we are not to be wise in our own sight. And in this context, because we're forgetting about Israel, I do not want you to be unaware. I'm quoting Romans eleven twenty five of this mystery. Right, a partial hardening of Israel has come upon them. Right, until the fullness of Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all of Israel will be saved, as it is written. And then it quotes Zechariah about the deliverer coming from Zion. Now it says in verse twenty-eight, yeah, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. I get it; they do reject Christ, and in that sense, we want to evangelize them. But as it regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And if that's the case, and He's going to graft them back in to this this olive tree, right? Then we would be, as it says in this passage, simply wise in our own eyes to take Israel and dump them in the trash as though God doesn't have a future for them. And that is where many moderns, and as you put it, many young people today who've been to Bible school, they just don't think this through. And praise God, Moody Bible Institute is not one of those places where you're going to get that perspective. We have a Jewish studies department here that's doing a great job making very clear the truth of Romans chapter 11. It is so important that we don't miss this. And all of this ends with a wonderful statement of doxology in verse 33, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. His plan is deeper and it's it's more complex than we think. If we want to think simplistically and reductionistically about Christianity, yeah, we'll take Israel and not even think about them. But if we want to take in this unsearchable and, and rich knowledge of God, the depths of his riches, we want to study that, then we better not take Israel off of our subject table. We've got to keep our eye on Israel because God is a God who's not done with them yet. National Israel is coming uh, back into the forefront of God's prophetic story, and his history uh, that he's had with them is not forgotten. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I would start studying in Romans chapter 9 through Romans chapter 11, take any young person and says, you better bury yourself here in this section of Scripture so that you're not wise or arrogant, as it says in the passage, about you being an unnatural branch that is grafted into God's good promises to Abraham. We've got to get back to understanding its importance so that we can look at what's going on in the Middle East right now and saying, yeah, this has relevance. It has relevance to God's plan, even if not in the end-time scenarios that's all, that is laid out in Scripture, at least in terms of the value that God places on these people. We don't give them a pass. Israel can't do whatever they want. They can't be unjust. They can't do wrong and us applaud them for it. But we better recognize that their their, their fight for their own existence is something that comports harmoniously with the promises of God. And in that sense, we are stand back and say, this friend of God, this national friend of God ought to be a friend of ours. Doesn't mean we don't correct our friends when they do wrong, but we ought to recognize that. We've got a great book on the website, uh, Israel's Glorious Future, The Prophecies and Promises of God Revealed. That's a Chosen People Ministries book that, that our program is putting out here. If you want to get that, go to our open line website, and we can offer that to you. It'd be a great place for you to start and to hand out. Get a couple copies of that and put it out there so people can understand God's not done with Israel yet. Thank you, Heidi, for the call. I know we ran out of time here. I hear the music coming up, but we're so grateful for you putting that uh, subject front and center, and we need to have it there for sure. Thank you, everybody, for listening and calling in. So grateful for you listening to Open Line. I think it is a great program, and I'm always honored, always honored to sit in as a guest host. So we'll need to have Dr. Rydelnik take more speaking engagements. I love doing it. I hope he thinks it's in good hands. We've got a great team. Trish McMillan, our producer on Open Line. Bob Maru is making sure everything works. 
Laura Markham is the one that is the pleasant voice uh, listening to you when you call in. For more information about Open Line, go to openlineradio.org. Open Line Radio with Dr. Michael Rydelnik is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.